We will eventually get back to Galatians, but Second Thessalonians 2 this evening. And I would like us to look into the characteristics of an ungodly age in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And I will begin reading with verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll look into this in Second Thessalonians 2. Father, we are grateful again to be able to break the bread of life and look into the scripture we ask you to give us all instruction tonight as we consider the time frame in which we live. We're so happy that you have given us specific events that we can look for, even though you have not always revealed everything as far as the timing on your calendar. But Father, I pray that this lesson will help each of us to want to live closer to you and live expectantly knowing that your son is soon to come. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Second Thessalonians addresses the issue of the coming of the Lord, as does First Thessalonians. In this letter particularly, the Thessalonians are troubled by the fact that people are speaking of the day of Christ in a way that makes it seem like it's already occurred or they're doing something to rob people of their faith in the coming of the Lord. In chapter one, Paul tells them, beginning with verse number eight, that the coming of the Lord is going to be about him taking vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel and those who do not know God. And that time that is described here is going to be one that's not so nice. But when we get to chapter 2 and we move into verse 1, you can see in that first sentence, he's saying to them, I'm imploring you, we're essentially encouraging you by the coming of the Lord. So the coming of the Lord is the basis of this discussion. We know what he means when he says the coming of the Lord and our gathering together unto him, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, Verse number 17, it talks about how the Lord will descend from heaven with the shout of a trump. And then it talks about the dead in Christ will rise up and we which are alive and remain will be caught up into the air to meet the Lord and we shall ever be with him. That's First Thessalonians 4. So we want to say that in the beginning because we want you to have an understanding of Paul's understanding of the coming of the Lord. There is going to be a departure of the saints from planet Earth where the saints are going to meet with the Lord in the sky. And Paul says that clearly in First Thessalonians 4. So the second sentence in verse 1 speaks of our gathering. 
That's a good way to describe it. Our assembling. At some point on the calendar, there's going to be a period of time where somebody's going to be walking. And when they lift up that foot and lay it down in the next place, they're going to be gone. They're going to be they're going to disappear. There's a point in time where somebody's going to be rolling down the street in a vehicle and a Christian is going to disappear. There's no doubt about it. This is the language Paul gives, as I said, in First Thessalonians 4. So here then in number two, he speaks about a person being shaken in their mind. If the adversary is going to try to deceive a Christian, he's going to start here. Because if we think wrongly or incorrectly about anything, it's going to affect how we live. The reason so many people have no expectation that the Lord is going to return at any time is because they read books that tell him that the Lord is not going to return or that the idea that Christ is going to return is a fiction. The coming of the Lord is important because it demonstrates to us that God is a judge and he'll hold everybody accountable for how we act. If we're under the impression that there is no judge in the end time before whom we have to stand, then quite naturally we'll believe that justice will never be measured out to anybody and we can just do whatever we want to do. But Paul never gives us that indication. He even says that it's a, it's a fearful thing to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and knowing that such an occasion is going to occur, we do what we can to persuade men. So this is a heaven or hell kind of a thing. It's a somebody goes up or somebody goes down. But the troubling, as you can see in verse two, is similar to what happened to the Galatians in chapter one, where he talks about those individuals being troubled. Anytime someone comes in with a doctrine that's different than what someone has received, it very often is unsettling and it brings into their life instability. And whenever you lose your your stability in your Christian walk with God, the adversary comes to try to make your life even worse. So Paul gives us some examples. He said, don't be troubled by spirit, even if something supernatural occurs and an angel comes along. Don't let that trouble you. If somebody tells you they found some golden plates under a rock in another state, don't follow them. If somebody tells you they were in a cave and somebody named Gabriel came to them and told them to start a new religion, don't believe it. He said, even if a spirit appears or manifests, don't believe it. And then he says, not by word. So if you're in a casual conversation with somebody and they try to talk you out of believing that the Lord will return, don't receive it. If you hear someone preach from the pulpit that the idea of the coming of the Lord is a fiction, it's a legend, it's a myth, don't believe it. He says here, not even from a letter. So there were in ancient times a number of pseudonymous letters that were written in the names of different apostles that did not make it into the canon. And this is why we have so many different gospels from the ancient times that still exist today. So we have things like the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Peter and so on and so forth. People understood that these documents were uh, basically uh, something you couldn't put a lot of trust in. They were unreliable, so they never made it in the canon, and the churches didn't accept them, and a lot of people didn't believe in them. 
So Paul lets us know here in verse number two that this kind of stuff was occurring at the time when he was alive and some of this was in circulation. So he said, even if somebody writes a letter in my name and you receive it and it seems like it's from me, you make sure you verify it. You just don't take for granted that this has come from me. Well, this is this is what we do. We see people do in the last days today. People will find some old Greek manuscript or some particular document and then they'll say this was older than documents that Christians used in medieval times. And before you know it, they've stirred up a hornet's nest and they've convinced a lot of people that there are things they do not need to believe. Now, we can deal with this subject in a lot of different ways, but we know that people tend to attack the virgin birth of Christ. Because they don't want people to believe that the virgin birth was unique. They want folks to believe that this was something similar to what you read in a lot of the ancient Greek and Roman stories. They attack Jesus' sinless life. Because folks will tell you, of course, nobody can live on this earth and be perfect. So everybody has failed God at some point. Well, if Jesus failed God, he wasn't the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Then sometimes people will say things like, well, he didn't die on the cross for other people's sins because it's not possible for someone to bear someone else's fault or guilt or penalty or transgressions. But that is exactly why Jesus' death on the cross was unique. Because never in the history of any religion did anybody die on the cross for someone else. And of course, with him being raised from the dead, you know that there are many people that struggle with that. So you remove these supernatural elements from the gospel and then you have people unsettled or shaken in their mind. And, and when you have conversations with people, sometimes you'll notice how, I mean, really distraught they are. They say, well, our preacher preached on this and I just don't know what to believe. See, they're, they're distraught. And the reason they're distraught is because the minister who is an unbeliever of scripture, has produced in the parishioner unbelief. And so there are these conversations going on around the dinner table and folks are saying, well, well, is, is this God? Is this right? Is this true? I mean, what am I supposed to believe about the Bible? This struggle goes on every day. And you probably have had conversations with people uh, more or less to that, to that degree. So the first sentence of verse number three says, let no, let no man deceive you by any means. Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21 has this same language. Jesus said in those last days, don't let anybody deceive you. He said, if it's possible, even the elect will be deceived. If it says, let no man deceive you, then understand that we're talking about human agents, human beings, people who become deceived in their mind, who in turn become deceivers. Troubled people very often trouble Other people, people who are incorrect in their belief, tend to sow seeds of what is incorrect in the hearts of other people. And the fact that he says by any means shows you that if the devil can find a vessel that he can use in these last days to increase the amount of deception in the church, he will do whatever he can by any means. And that's why in verse two, he lists by spirit, by word. Or by letter. But the day of Christ, according to the last sentence of verse two, Paul says that that day of Christ 
is at hand. So Paul's understanding of the coming of the Lord was that we should live as though the king can come at any time. I like to say it this way. We, we, we should live prayed up, packed up and ready to go. See, he, he may not come this evening, but he may come for you or for me tonight. See, so we should always be ready. The day of Christ is at hand. And, and believe me when I tell you, when you hear somebody say, well, the Lord can't come back quite yet because this hadn't happened, that hadn't happened, this hadn't happened, that hadn't happened. I can assure you there's no one on this planet that has their eyes on everything taking place across this earth that will be able to say to you one day, okay, now I've already examined two billion other events on the planet and the Lord can come back now. The coming of the Lord is going to be as surprising to us when he returns as it was when he came the first time. Because the people didn't believe he had even come. And and, and you remember how Herod and all them brought the preachers and the priests and everybody in and they brought their prophecy charts out and they said, now, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they pointed out all these different places where he was supposed to come. And Jesus had already been born and they and they totally missed it and did not even believe in it. And that's why so many little infants lost their lives. But verse three goes on to tell us that that day will not come except there's a falling away first. Now, the Greek word. Behind this phrase, falling away, is where we get our word apostasy from. We use the word apostate. Apostasy has to do with people who had embraced the truth, but at some point had relinquished that truth and moved away from that truth. But if a person relinquishes their grip on the truth, I can promise you they will always reach out and embrace something else. So if you let go of truth, inevitably, you're going to grab hold to error. And Paul says this is going to happen first. There's going to be a falling away. There were not near as many Christians in ancient times as there are now. There were not. In Paul's day, there were pockets and handfuls of Christians here, larger groups of Christians there, but not near as many as we have right now. And he's already talking about a falling away. See? So he, he understood what was going to take place. Is it me or is it getting warm in here? Just, let me, just slightly. Yeah. Okay. So verse three there. The falling away is going to occur. Paul gives us additional information in first Timothy. That's the next book. Go there quickly. The next book. First Timothy chapter number four. Listen to his language in verse number one. And you tell me if any of this applies to the day in which we live now. When we think about churches, when we think about cults, when we think about sinners in the last days. First Timothy four, beginning with verse one. Now the spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Do You think that's happening? You think we can honestly say people are turning from truth? I, I, I think that's true. If, well, let me, let me put it this way. At home, I, I have two volumes from the, from the 18, mid, mid 1800s, two volumes of sermons of John Wesley. And from time to time, I like to pull those out and just read 
what this man of God was preaching back when he was around in the 18th century. Because I'm interested in how he approached salvation, the gifts, the power of God, and so on and so forth, the grace of God. And when you read him, you can't help but come to the conclusion, here's a man that believed that, that the power of the word, the word of God had converting power. It could change a community, it could change a soul. And that's how he raised up that Methodist church, preaching the truth of the word of God. He believed what was in scripture. And at no time in any of his sermons that I've read, have I ever come across him saying something is a legend, something is a myth, something is unbelievable that's recorded in the scripture. He believed the Bible was the inspired word of God. You can turn the television on anywhere in America on a public channel, public access channel, and you can listen to people of that particular denomination, listen to them preach. And I promise you, if you pulled one of John Wesley's sermon out and then listen to what you hear, you'll see it's totally different. A totally different message. Some of you may have the hardbound collection of the seven-volume sermons of Martin Luther. If you've ever pulled those out and just slowly walked through those and read what he preached uh, when he was in his church and all of the things that he noted dealing with justification by faith, what he understood about the cross, his belief about Jesus Christ, you can read those sermons and know that you're coming in contact with a mind that is founded on scripture but then you can go anywhere in america today in many churches that he founded and you hear something that's totally different you can go and follow the english puritans of the 18th century in britain and even some of our own puritan folks that were in our colonies read some of those old sermons of jonathan edwards some of the ones that uh, go back to John Owens and, and other people over in Great Britain, Richard Sibbs, people like that. And you see where people believed in Scripture as the infallible Word of God. The Anglican Church had a movement in it that was producing people that loved God and preached the truth. But then you can look at the Episcopalian Church today, which in 2003 voted in the first gay uh, bishop over their movement and you can see there's been a departure from the faith even in full gospel movement you, you, you can look at how they once preached and believed the power of God the anointing of God preached the truth of the word of God without fear without compromise it was strong on the Holy Spirit and on the coming of the Lord and things like that, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you can listen to people teach today and, and you just sit there and you wonder if, if it's even the same movement that you once knew. Now this isn't anything to, to, to be negative. I'm just simply uh, trying to point out something that, that Paul saw that in the last days, according to what the Spirit of the Lord was saying, First Timothy 4 and 1, there are going to be some that depart from the faith. Not all, not most, not many, but some. The problem is the some who depart from the faith very often are the ones in positions of authority and power. They control the Bible colleges, the seminaries, the universities, the large churches in the metropolitan eras. So he says, this is what it is, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So who would have ever thought that the falling of way is connected to demon spirits? 
Who would have ever thought that the problem that we see with preachers and people who do not believe in the truth of Scripture, that it's not just a matter of somebody rationalizing it or coming to the conclusion that it's illogical, but that there are actually spiritual beings behind all of this, leading people towards unbelief, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. A doctrine is a teaching. He says, speaking lies and hypocrisy. See, so here, here's what is taking place. Somebody is articulating something that they say they believe, but they really don't believe. I wonder how many preachers there are in the pulpits who preach the gospel, but don't even believe in it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many people there are that go to church week after week and don't believe in anything. That's written in that Bible. That's handling the word of God deceitfully. That's speaking lies in hypocrisy. You can put it in reverse. There are people who don't believe in scripture and get up and proclaim that to people. But yet when they get in company with other people, they act like they do believe it. Because they don't want anybody to be offended. They don't want to lose a position of power. He says, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You know, you, you take a brand and you put it on cattle. If you brand them when they're young, of course, even when they get older, you still have that mark. Because it sears, it's seared into that flesh. So it just doesn't go away. And a person who has their conscience affected like this, that is to say, these this deception has become so ingrained in their thinking and in their mentality that they cannot get over it. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it's a reprobate mind. And it's something that's noticeable. You can hear it when people talk. And verse 3, he gets into other areas where he says that you're not allowed to marry. Now, that is always an interesting thing to me. If you forbid anybody to marry, that's a problem, especially when God said it's not good for man to be alone. So why would we tell anyone you are forbidden, prohibited from marrying anyone? But there are people and there are uh, religious folks that do that, commanding them to abstain from meats. See, we're talking about the last days. From meats. Now, in the Old Testament, you know, there were certain kinds of meats that Jewish people were not allowed to eat. They didn't eat. Pork, they didn't deal with catfish and shrimp and things like that. And even to this day, they won't eat it. But but we're Christian now. And here's what Paul says in verse three, which God hath created to be received. So on this side of the cross, we're not offended by these kinds of foods or meats. Now, he says they're to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So if I have faith in God and I understand the truth of the cross, that Jesus death has made it possible for me to enjoy what's down here on planet Earth. I may turn my nose up at what somebody else eats, but I don't have to be offended because they're eating it. I don't eat horse. But they do in France. See, we, we eat beef and we enjoy it. But people in India, they can't understand us. What is wrong with you people? You could be eating someone's cousin. See? So that, that kind of a thing. But Paul says in the last days, there would be these beliefs that 
keep people from enjoying what God said they should be able to enjoy. If you choose to be a vegetarian, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's your choice, that's what you want to do. That's fine. But if you say you're a vegetarian because God said in his Bible, we can no longer eat meats and we shouldn't eat that, then you have been deceived and you're wrong. Verse four, every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with what? Thanksgiving. So you just sit down right in front of that big old plate of barbecue pig feet and you say, praise the Lord and dig in. And you don't let anybody discourage you when you're going at it, eating some chitlins or eating whatever it is that you want want to eat. Okay, so go back to Second Thessalonians chapter two now. So Paul speaks then of a falling away. It's obvious that from Paul's day until now, there has been a continual departure of the faith from certain people. By certain people. And this is why very often denominations begin. You have a group of people that start off on fire with God and they love the Lord. And that core group stays with God. But then suddenly there's a change in belief and people say, well, we no longer believe this. We no longer accept that. And the people who still hold to the core principles, they say, well, we haven't deviated. And so those people usually withdraw. And then they become their own movement and they're holding to truth and they're believing God. And they say, we're staying right with what the word of God says. And then over a period of time, if you're not careful, there'll be another group of people that develop. And they'll say, well, I think we ought to make some changes and do this and do that. And then the core group said, we're, we're holding to the principles. Then pretty soon they withdraw. That's been the story of the church in the history Last the last 2000 years of the of the church's history. And, and when people ask, why are there so many Protestant denominations and Catholic denominations and Orthodox church denominations and independent churches? It is because you have people who begin with a particular belief. And then when it looks like people are turning, then people withdraw. See? That that's that's what happens. So here we here we are again. He says the falling away will come first and then the man of sin will be revealed. The son of perdition. The man of sin. So with the falling away that precedes this and with the church that's going to be gathered unto the Lord, there will be an appearance of someone called the man of sin And the word perdition has to do with destruction. This person by nature is going to be sinful. Not going to be interested in God. Daniel gives the characteristics of such a guy in in chapter 11, verse 36. And he says this one won't have any regard for the God of his ancestors. He'll speak marvelous words, great swelling words. He'll think he's the God of gods and so on and so forth. But Paul goes on in verse four and says he will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God. So he will not be happy with the idea of God. So certainly he won't be happy with the people that worship that God. Why do you think Christians are persecuted like they are now? Why do you think persecution has continued throughout the history of the church? And it's getting worse now. And the reason it's getting worse is because we hear more of it because of television and 
and radio, but Christians have been treated badly for a long time. And when you saw some years ago Christians being crucified over there in the Middle East, over in the Syrian areas and stuff like that, we wonder how can people be so demented in their mind and believe that a religion encourages them to do that, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. It's something that drives that mentality. And this man in verse 4 will be utterly opposed to God, be opposed to the worship of God, and he will put himself in a position so that he will be considered God and he'll want the adoration and worship that should go only to the Lord. Yeah, when the, when the, when the church is called away, and the first seal is opened from Revelation. And that man of sin or the false Christ is released. I can promise you there's going to be a lot of people surprised that such wickedness could develop in the last days. Now, we've got bad stuff going on now, but you, you can't even envision how bad it's going to be. If you remove the Christians, but, but maybe I could help you understand it this way. Let's suppose that all of the Christians in Thayer County were uprooted and moved to another county. Do you think within a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years, this county would be different? I guarantee the character of this place would be entirely different. So imagine if you took all the Christians in Nebraska and removed them and put them in another state. Do you think marijuana would get legalized quicker? I think there'd be a whole lot of other things that would be legalized in a a quicker way also. So it's Christians very often that are holding back a lot of the wickedness that would easily manifest and multiply. And this is why God has us here as a light. He wants us to be a force that stands together on the basis of the word of God, even if people worship in different fellowships, because we know that according to scripture, there is already a mystery of iniquity that is at work in this world. We're coming to that. So Paul says in verse five, look, we've already had these conversations and I've told you these things. You just have to remember. So he said in verse six, you have to know that that the one that is holding back all of this is, is, is doing this because the man of sin is going to be revealed in his time. He has a time. He has a particular time, just like Christ came into this world at a particular time in the fullness of time. So the man of sin, the Antichrist, Daniel's little horn cannot be revealed until his time. God has a calendar. And once all of this comes into play, it's going to be astonishing. It's going to be shocking. But according to the scripture, the believers won't be here. Why do I know that? Because the Bible speaks of that period as the day of wrath. And Romans makes it very plain that we have not been appointed to wrath. And Thessalonians makes it very plain. We have not been appointed to wrath. And as we saw in first second Thessalonians chapter one, the Lord's going to return with flaming fire and he's going to deal with those who haven't obeyed the gospel. And all of that's going to take place at the end of that seven year period of tribulation that's going to come upon this earth. 
But let me look at this with a little more detail. So verse 7 speaks of the mystery of iniquity. What is a mystery? A mystery is something that is hidden. It is secretive. It is not known. He calls it a mystery of iniquity because there is a process of sin and transgression that is already at work in the world. And people don't even understand why people do certain things. How can people be this evil? Paul says it's a mystery of iniquity at work. When, when you have a conversation with someone about a baby over here, and now they got debates about this, a baby over here being born, and whether or not we're going to let the kid live or the child die, and now people are debating and saying, okay, if you, if you keep a child alive for a month, you should be able to even determine then, after a month, whether or not you want the kid to live or to die. So you, you start asking yourself a question. How did we get to a place where we have these conversations? See, it's hidden to the natural mind. It's hidden to people who don't know God. It's a mystery of iniquity that's already at work. And this is exactly what, what Paul said. It was at work in his time. If he felt that way about the ancient Greco-Roman culture and society, I wonder what he would think of our culture. What he would think of the world today when he sees the witchcraft and he sees the stuff that goes on today. So he says in verse seven, the mystery of iniquity is at work now. Only he who is the obstacle is going to hinder all of this until he be taken out of the way. So the man of sin is going to appear in his time. But until his time comes, there is an obstacle. And the obstacle is what's holding back all of that. Now, the, the, the presence of the body of Christ and the, the hand of God is, is certainly the, the, the main restraining force keeping the devil from doing everything he wants to do. But eventually, the, the hindrance is going to be removed. And there's going to be a full-flooded manifestation of the adversary and his power. In verse 8, so then that wicked, I'm going to say wicked one, then that wicked will be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. You can see that back in chapter 1, verse number 8. So the adversary is known as a wicked person. Christ is going to destroy him with the words that he speaks. I think it's in Revelation towards the end where it talks about the Lord coming back on a white horse. And he's going to have holiness written on his thigh and be in a beautiful vesture. And then just with the sword of the spirit coming out of his mouth, he's going to be able to take on the adversary and just totally annihilate him. He's going to be done. See, Lord's just going to deal with him and just tie a knot in his tail. And he's he's just going to end up in the in the in, uh, in, in hell for for a thousand years and for a good while. Or should say in hell and then eventually in, in, in the lake of fire. So verse nine goes on to say, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now we learn that the adversary does have power. He can produce signs and lying wonders. What is power? Energy or force to do evil. What is a sign? Something that is indicative. It points to a certain feature, to a certain time, to a certain person. And you, you can believe from the book of Revelation that when John said he saw a beast come up out of the sea, 
And then later on, he talks about how he saw another dragon that had come up that empowered the beast. He understood that the man of sin in the last days would be supernaturally equipped by the devil to do things that are evil. Now, if I were to ask you, do you think when Saddam Hussein was on this planet that he was an evil man? Most of you probably would say yes. If I were to ask you, what is it that he did that you think makes him an evil man? Then you'd probably be able to list a lot of things that you read in the newspaper or saw on the news. If I were to ask you, was Adolf Hitler an evil man? I mean, after all, he was, he once was an infant and some little mother kissed him on the forehead and welcomed his birth into the world and was happy to see him. I don't have a doubt that 99 out of 100 people you talk to would say Hitler was an evil man. Same thing with Idi Amin, Benito Mussolini. Some would feel that way about Joseph Stalin. And, and that's just in that, that period of the mid 20th century. But you start working your way back talking about Genghis Khan and other people throughout the, 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 uh, the history of this world. And what you'll find is there have been people who have done things, mass atrocities in this earth that we don't even know about. But I'm convinced that some of these people made it to positions of power because there was an aura or some kind of supernatural help that led them to that position. If you watch some of those old films where Hitler has a few hundred thousand people out there and he comes and stands out there, it looks like some of these people are mesmerized, hypnotized as he's talking. And so there is a mass hysteria, but there's also something demonic that can be involved with a crowd of people who are listening to someone speak. How did Jim Jones talk so many people into drinking Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide? See, the, the average mom does not want to see their child commit suicide. And the average parent doesn't want to do that either. So if you can get seven or eight hundred people to do that, and then when they talk about him, they talk about him in such wonderful language where they esteem him and prize him highly. You have to ask the question, how could anybody take a beautiful kid and give that kid cyanide and then just lay down next to him and die? Adversary gets involved with this and he produces a power and signs and lying wonders and verse 10 says, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So it is the truth that is the problem. That's the problem. Now, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And he, he's looking for an answer. But, but here you can see, if, if you reject the truth, and you don't love the truth, then the only thing to embrace is error. That's it. There's nothing else. It's either right or it's wrong. It's either up or it's down. And, and when we, when we look at it that way, it's not very difficult to make a decision. And the last few words of verse 10 says that they might be saved. So it's, it's possible for people to give their hearts to the Lord when they come into the saving knowledge of the truth. But the devil is doing everything he can to keep the truth from being known to people. I'm convinced that religion was created by the adversary to keep people from ever finding Christ. Yeah. Religion is a mask. 
And it hides the face of God, which is revealed in Jesus Christ. And we've got every kind of religion you can think of on this earth. People who worship mountains. Celestial things in the sky, sun, the moon. People who worship trees and vegetation. People who worship the God of the ocean. I mean, even ancient Greeks had Poseidon. See? So there's always been a generation of people that have wanted to create a God that would be exactly how they wanted him to be. And in this generation we have now, when you talk to Christians and you say, here's what the good book says, here's what the Bible teaches, here's what is clearly printed in front of you, and they'll say something like this. Well, my God isn't like that. Because over time, when you continue to run into scriptures that you find disagreeable, or you don't understand, or scriptures that you don't like, then you come to the conclusion those those verses can't be right. Somebody either added them, or they put those verses in there, and they cannot be right, and they cannot fully represent a holy God and a loving God, and because God is such a God of love as I understand Him, that cannot be right, and I refuse to accept it. So according to this, they reject the truth, and it hampers them from being saved. Of all of the characteristics of God, He's holy, he's just, he's faithful, he's jealous, he's a healer. The one characteristic that everybody knows and loves and appreciates is God is love. See, And with that one attribute, we have taken that one attribute and magnified it to the point that we believe it is all out of proportion to everything else. But I want you to know that when we talk about God and his holiness and and God being a God of wrath and so on and so forth, that God is no more God of love than he is a God who is faithful. He's no more or less a God who is holy than he is a God who is compassionate. But whenever you latch on to one particular characteristic that you like, then you'll build your whole life and doctrine around that, and you'll struggle with everything else. So here, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, see, because of what they did, here's the, here's the consequence. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Since you have chosen to believe what is untrue, God said, I'm going to help you along. If you, if you think you're deceived now, you wait till I'm done with you. That's what he said. Now, he only does it because of verse 10. You reject the truth. You move further into error. In Kings and in Chronicles, it tells the story where the Lord said, "Okay, this king wants to go to battle. But who's going to go down there and be a lying spirit in the mouths of this king's prophets? And one, the devil stuck his hand. I'm really I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And he went right on down there and deceived the king, and the king went right out in the battle and ended up in, in trouble. There will always be an adversary who wants to delude and deceive people. And if you allow yourself to be deceived, he'll have you. And it's hard to pull people, pull people out of that. I've had parents who've asked me before, could, could you please call and talk to my adult son or daughter about the gospel or about this or about that. And I'll make the phone calls and try to talk to some people. But, you know, some people are so entrenched in sin that they are not going to listen to another perspective, especially if your perspective is entirely rooted in Scripture. Yeah. Well, one time I preached a meeting for 
the, the Methodist church. And there was a lady in that meeting that God really uh, dealt with her heart. And so she asked me if I could talk to her mother. And she gave me her mother's phone number and her mother's address. And so I made the phone call and, and I said to the lady, I said, hello, my name is Daryl Sutton. I'm pastor of such and such church. And your daughter was in a revival meeting where I was preaching in such and such town. And, and I'd click. So I said, no, that, that surely that didn't happen. So let me dial that back again. And, 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 and she answered the phone again. I said, hello, I'm Daryl Sutton. And, you know, I'm, I'm calling because your daughter wanted me to call and check on you and talk to you. Click. Well, the, the lady was Jehovah's Witness. And when she walked away from Christianity and became a Jehovah's Witness, in that particular group that she was with, they told her, you can no longer talk to your children. You understand that? Think about that. You can no longer talk to your children. A friend of mine who had been raised Jehovah's Witness, left that faith, became a wonderful evangelical Christian loving the Lord. He and his wife had, I don't know, three, four beautiful kids. And and he told the the story of how his parents who lived, I think, maybe Kansas or something like that. He made a long drive with his kids and his wife and took them to the home where his parents were at because he just thought it was unconscionable that he had all these grandkids, they had these grandkids, and they had never seen one of them, never talked to him on the telephone. So here he drives up to the house, and, and he talks about how he got out. He's knocking on the door, got his kids standing right out in the front yard, and mom and dad are peeking through the curtains. Never even bothered to open the door after he drove all that time. Folks, I'm telling deception is strong. The, the, the familial tie between a mother and a father and the kids is so great. It has to be supernatural if somebody's willing to just cut off ties with somebody just because they have a different belief and say they don't ever want to talk to them. But that's what that's what they did. So verse 11, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. The only way you can know that it's a lie, you have to know the truth of what Scripture says. If I say to you, there is only one name under the heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Acts chapter 4. If, if I say that to you, then I'm quoting Scripture. And then once you learn that, you believe that. If somebody else comes along and says, well, you know, with my understanding of God... You know, religion is just like a big wheel with a lot of different spokes and God is the hub, the center of it. And all of these different spokes will still lead you to God and lead you to heaven. We just all come our own different way. Well, if you don't know that verse out of Acts 4, what someone is saying to you may actually make sense. But when you come back to truth, you'll realize there's only one God that God gave his son. There's only one name that can produce salvation. If I must be saved, that means I may be saved. See, I may be saved. And if um, if if we work it historically from the beginning, then it goes like this. God made Adam and Eve, put them in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned, they were put out of the garden. Then God allowed them to multiply. As they multiply sins, multiplied in the earth, the Lord said, by Genesis chapter 6, sins of man are great, 
My spirit's not going to continue to strive with people, trying to keep people from doing what's wrong. They don't want to listen to me. So the Lord, he sends a flood to the earth. People die. Handful of people live, Noah and his family. And according to scripture, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And if his wife made it and his three sons and their wives made it, then they must have found grace in the eyes of the Lord and believed the same thing Noah believed. Because what Noah heard was what goes back to Enoch. What goes back to the preceding generations going back to Adam. So as everybody else was falling away, Noah was living in his generation as someone who decided, I'm not going that direction just because my other family members are going that direction. And that's why the Lord Jesus, when he speaks about the last days, he talks about, remember how it was in the days of Noah. Handful of people made it. So Noah and them get on the ark, and as they're praising the Lord, enjoying their salvation, having a wonderful time with whatever animals they had on that ark, when it comes time for them to get off of that ark a year or so later, they get off with the knowledge of one God. Nobody on that ark was singing to any other God. They were singing to the one true God, and they got off, and the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply, and then pretty soon everybody started loving the Lord, and within a few generations... Because our hearts, we like to produce our own deities. Noah lived long enough to see his great-great-grandsons start doing what was wrong. And from that time forward, we ended up with Egyptian religions, Babylonian religions, Assyrian religions, Philistine religions, Canaanite religions, Hittite religions, and so on and so forth. And this thing has multiplied to the point that now there are religions on this earth that you don't know about and I don't know about. And we could spend the rest of our life trying to study them. That's why I said it's all a mask to keep people from ever finding God. The devil has known exactly what he is doing. Well, let me finish this. Verse 12. Because they believe a lie, they'll all be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the deception is so great that they embrace the error and they enjoy the error thinking that they are actually correct in their belief. That's worse. To be wrong and not know you're wrong. And we've all probably had conversations with people who can tell you about what they used to be in and then they came out of that because they came into a knowledge of of the power of the cross and what Jesus did for them when he or she died. Uh, don't be discouraged uh, with your family members. Pray for them. God is a God that answers prayer. And prayers linger in the presence of God. We know that from the book of Revelation with the altar of incense or the incense uh, for prayers that are up there. There have been a lot of mothers and fathers that prayed for their kids all their lives. And then the mothers and fathers died without seeing the kids come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. But at the funeral, the kids get saved. Or within a few years, the kids get saved. Now, I know mom and dad wants to see them saved now. In fact, yesterday, we would like to see that. But the point is, if we pray, God is a supernatural God. He's a powerful God. And in these last days, regardless of the characteristics that we know Paul has prophesied and predicted, we still know that in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit. Supernatural things are going to yet occur. God has not abandoned this earth. That's why we're here. 
to be a people that trust God and believe God. And when we come in contact with people that are bold and brash and they say, well, I don't believe that Bible. I just think you're crazy for believing in God. Then you can be just as bold but loving and say, well, I still believe in God and God loves you even though you're on your way to hell. You don't have to say it like that. <laughs> you, can, you can say God loves you because God goes out of his way to put every obstacle possible, it seems, in front of people to keep them from losing their souls. And if God loves to that extent, how much more should we be that way? Uh, reaching family members is one of the hardest things to do. Sometimes it's best to just live the life without even opening your mouth. Just let them see it and how you live. But that means you have to do certain things in front of them so they'll see you do it. I mean, you, when you have your Thanksgiving meals and Easter gatherings and stuff like that, take the time to say, let's pray, even if it angers them. See? Take the time, let's pray. Or you can say something like, okay, this is Thanksgiving time. Everybody should have one thing to be thankful for. Then people give something they're thankful for. And the people who don't want to participate, they can just sit there, stand there, and listen to everybody else go on and on. Because I guarantee you, if I was somewhere and there were a bunch of people in the room and I said, okay, Randy, just give one thing you're thankful for. I guarantee we get 22. Yeah. We, we'd all stand there and just have to listen. And people can be irritated, but they'll remember what they hear. Then later on, they'll think about that. Yeah. yeah. Many times people have called me after a family member gave them one of our CDs and they tossed it in a glove compartment or up under a chair or something like that. Then three years later, they happen to remember that it was somewhere in and they tear the whole thing apart looking for it. And then I get a phone call and say, I just want you to know I was listening to that CD and I got saved. See, praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this evening that even though we know what's coming and even though we know what's occurring in these last days, we have hope because your son is going to return and we're going to be united with him. And we are grateful that we're called to be a light. You've called us to the kingdom for such a time as this. We are not discouraged. We are the witness that you have placed in the earth to encourage people to come to know you. So we love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen.